Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to another episode of Deal of the Week. I'm Ed Hammond, your host, and we will be talking today about General Electric. GE seems to be rolling from one crisis to another. It's always in the news, nearly always for the wrong reasons. And yesterday, again, they had problems. The CEO, John Flannery, came out and said the company would be taking a big loss on its insurance business. He also, and this is really interesting, raised the possibility that GE could face a breakup, this once sacred industrial conglomerate finally being, uh, I suppose, picked apart. Anyway, joining me this week to discuss it is Brooke Sutherland, one of the columnists here at Bloomberg Gadfly, who has followed GE very closely. Um, Brooke, I don't really know where to start with GE. It seems like every (laughs) every time I read something that you've written on them, it's bad news. And even when they are sort of purporting to put out good news or, or at least proactive news, it seems to get beaten up in the market. So, where are we at with G? What's the latest in this uh, apparently never-ending saga? It is a never-ending saga. Um, the latest is uh, this week they announced they're going to take a $6.2 billion after-tax impairment charge related to legacy insurance assets in GE Capital. This was surprising for several reasons. For one, we knew they were reviewing the insurance reserves, but previously people had been prepared for sort of a $3 billion charge. Obviously, this is significantly larger. They're also going to shore up their reserves by $15 billion. This is a business that GE divested in 2004-2006, so it the charges relate to sort of these holdover remnants. Everybody sort of thought we were through all of the bad stuff with GE Capital after right. how much it exploded in the financial crisis. I, I how thought much GE they sold didn't off. do this anymore. I thought GE had gone back to being like we make stuff, not we lend stuff, right? So, so why are they dealing with capital stuff? But see, that's sort of I, I guess a misconception with how, and it goes back to how GE, you know, messaged around this. It's still technically, you know, by assets like a top twenty U.S. bank. So it's no longer considered a systemically important financial institution. They've significantly reduced the size of this business. It is still massive, and it's super opaque. I mean, nobody really knows what's in here. And there's all sorts of holdover businesses. There's, like, mortgage assets that are still in there. And people are worried now that you have this insurance impairment What's going on with some of these other assets within GE Capital that nobody's looked at in years and nobody really knows, you know, how bad they might be? And could there be more charges, more liabilities that could come out of this? So this is just the part of GE that isn't really even supposed to exist. Let's talk about the parts of GE that are supposed to exist, because another thing that Flannery, the, the CEO, said yesterday was he kind of hinted that there may be a breakup. Is that right? Like a full scale breakup of GE is potentially in the works? It is. And um, it was interesting because he's been asked about this constantly, just given, you know, all of the bad news at GE, people are saying, do you really need this company all to be together? And could it be possible that because it's so big, so diverse, that is maybe where some of these problems came about, that the oversight wasn't there, that things got missed, got underestimated. Um, This week, it was interesting because he sort of had a change in tone. He's always said, you know, there's no sacred cows and all those sort of general platitudes. But this time he said, we would consider separating out some of our main businesses, that being healthcare, power, aviation, 
into separate publicly traded entities, sort of along the lines of what they've already done with Synchrony Financial and the Baker Hughes uh, energy business. So that is interesting. And that would be very different than than sort of what they've messaged around a breakup before. Now, we, we, we've seen, I guess, Siemens is the, probably the best analog for this. And we've seen them do something similar. They're obviously spinning off their huge healthcare business somewhere in the region of sort of $30, $40 billion worth of healthcare there. Um, but for GE, this is massive, right? This is the end of GE as we know it. GE is the quintessential industrial conglomerate. They've built this empire. It's, it's Historically, it's traded at a premium because it's, you know, you have this kind of conglomerate premium. But now it's going the other direction. Now they're saying, what, that actually maybe it makes more sense to break it up and be a, a series of separate companies. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that maybe they should have done this a long time ago. Um, it would be massive for GE. You know, it's it's sort of this icon of American industry that traces its roots back to Thomas Edison. It's one of those companies that when you ask some random person on the street, they're going to know what it is. And it's sort of thought of as this behemoth. But maybe in today's day and age, it doesn't need to be that behemoth. Um, you know, we've seen sort of all across the industrial landscape, companies that were one time in, in, you know, five, six, seven different industries saying, we don't need to be doing all of this. We should refocus. We should do one or two things really well and, you know, focus on businesses that are profitable, that have, you know, good margins that are growing, and maybe think about whether there's a better structure for some of the other fields that we play in. You know, Honeywell is spinning off some businesses. There's speculation that maybe United Technologies could look at a breakup, um, you know, all sort of down the spectrum as far as, as size and, and um, scale for these companies are thinking about this. And so, you know, I think it was maybe sort of a long time coming for GE. And, the interesting thing for me is that they've sort of been in this perpetual breakup mode for over a decade. Jeff Immelt sort of got rid of some GE capital businesses immediately after the crisis and sort of wound some of that down. He got rid of NBC Universal, GE's appliances business, and then sort of the massive sell-off of GE Capital in 2015. So he's been sort of chipping away at it, and clearly I, I don't think that went far enough. And so now maybe you need to take sort of the final step of saying – Let's rethink the identity of this company. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So I want to come back to A, the sum of the parts and ML, because I think we can't do this without really <laughs> having a go at ML. Um, to what extent is this sort of breakup culture we're seeing of these big conglomerates, obviously Honeywell, UTX, um, and now GE, is this to do with tech at all and the sort of the, the way that technology and particularly the way technology intersects with industrials now? And that's driven this sort of uh, pace of change that's so much faster than what we had historically seen. Is that something that's creating a kind of big pressure on the industry to be, as you say, sort of more focused on specific things rather than trying to be this, you know, big is beautiful all under one roof? 
I think a lot of the breakup is just sort of a, a bleed over from what we've seen across all different industries where investors just want smaller, more focused companies. Um, I think there's, you know, been sort of a shift in the perception of, um, you know, where managerial excellence comes from. And I think it used to be if you could build an empire, you were sort of the top. And now it's, no, we want, you know, somebody who's focused and can can do these, you know, one things, one, two things really, really well and achieve the profits that we're looking for. But I do think digital does play a role. And it's it's interesting you bring that up because that was sort of one of the reasons that GE gave for why all of its pieces belong together is that, you know, when you have all of these different businesses and a company the sky, scale, size and scale of GE, you have more resources to invest in things like digital versus if you just had GE Healthcare, you know, it would be significantly more limited as far as what it could spend. I do think there's something to that, but by the same logic, I, I don't really think GE's digital effort is appreciated for what it is at this point because it's sort of gotten lost in this quagmire of other difficulties. So I think to really compete in digital, what we're seeing is the companies that are more focused and are more specific and have found sort of niche areas are more likely to be successful. And that's companies like Honeywell, that's companies like Roper, which, you know, is is very digitally focused, but it does very, very small niche type technology. So like highway toll systems, they're right. not trying to be the be all end all provider for every industrial company, which was GE's initial goal. And I think it's, it's very hard to compete in that because you're going up against SAP and Oracle and all of these companies whose main job is software. So I don't know how you're going to compete with them on that scale. Well, just in a simple sense, you're going to struggle to actually hire the talent because if you're the talent, you're going to go and work for the software companies. You're not going to go and work for a company where software or technology is only a very small part of what they do. And we see this in, you know, if you look at the industrial companies that are very specialized and particularly very specialized in something that's sort of technology heavy, someone like Rockwell Automation, you see they trade at phenomenal premiums. Uh, obviously, they themselves are recently the target of a failed takeover bid. And these companies are treated by the market essentially as being in a completely different sector to someone like GE. Absolutely. No, that's very true. All right. So now we're going to come to email because uh, email. we were talking about this briefly before we, before we started recording, the sort of who really is to blame here. Is this a Welch problem? Welch obviously was if you like the sort of the most famous exponent of this biggest beautiful concept and everything uh, being within one empire, Imel inherited that 16 years, was it 16 years he ran the company? Um, who's to blame? You know, it's funny because every time I seem to write anything that touches on this, I get about 50 emails arguing both sides. Um, you know, I, I think the real answer is it's probably a little bit of both. But I do think, to your point, look, Emote was in this job for 16 years. And at a certain point, you know, like the statute of limitations is up on Jack Welch. And I think you have to look at what Emote did with what he inherited. He had plenty of time to maybe remedy some of these things. And you go back to a lot of people point towards the finance assets that he inherited. And yes, Jack Welch did build up that business significantly. But Immelt also added to that business pre-financial crisis. Um, he seemed to sort of realize it and took some stuff away from there and immediately after the crisis, you know, whittled that down. But he definitely did play a role there. And then he also, you know, expanded into fire and security right after September 11th, which ultimately ended up being a business that was neglected within GE and had to be sold off. And he, you know, did these acquisitions in energy and power that later came back to bite when those markets failed. And so I think, you know, a lot of the issues that GE is facing today do come back to ML. And, you know, it's also a question of oversight and just good management. And how could all of these things be 
so severely missed um, because a lot of their issues in power just go back to underestimating the market and, you know, not really understanding where people are buying and what they're looking for. And that's a pretty significant miss to make. Or, you know, these GE capital issues with the insurance business, this was sort of a known issue. They do a review of their insurance reserves every year. So why now in 2017 are we seeing this multi-billion dollar charge? How was this so severely overlooked? So Emma almost went out and got rid of some sacred cows, but maybe increased the herd overall in terms of bringing in, I mean, like you say, he did a lot of deals and a lot of empire building of his own. He did, uh, I suppose, most recently Baker Hughes, which was an enormous deal for GE. It was. And then the Alstom uh, yep. energy assets as well. And some analysts have done really good analysis as far as the businesses that GE divested and then the ones it acquired. And they don't net each other out. It's a negative, dilutive effect, ultimately. So, I mean, that tells me you're not very good at capital allocation. Right. And again, that comes back to this sort of this this flip where you used to have the conglomerate premium and now you really have the conglomerate discount. Exactly. And trying to move away from that. So let's let's look forward a bit here. We, you know, we, we can blame the current sort of state of affairs on ML. And, and obviously, at some point, we, we will run out of road to do that. Talk to me about Flannery. Is, uh, what kind of guy is he? Is he, a, is he an ML uh, protege? Is he going to take this coming in a different direction? He said there's no sacred cows. He said he's willing to do what needs to be done to make GE once again a great American company. But is he too much part of this culture? You know, I think that was is really the big question about John Flannery. And I certainly had doubts when he was brought in because he played a role in some of these acquisitions that are giving GE problems now. The Alstom deal, he was the architect of that. He was GE's head of business development. So he was very much involved in that process. That acquisition is not panned out at all, like GE was hoping. Um, He's been at the company for, I think, 30 years. And so he's very much a product of the culture. So I think it's fair to ask, how much can you change the culture that nurtured you, produced you professionally? That said, I think he is doing the right things, at least as far as being transparent and open with investors and trying to get all of the problems out in the open. I think, you know, when you talk to investors, they appreciate that about him. They appreciate how he's attacking all of this head first, and it's less sweeping the problems under the rug, which has sort of been what we've seen from GE in the past couple of years. I think they're confident that he can maybe take this in the right direction, but time will tell. I mean, it's when you're talking about a breakup, that that's a very hard process to manage without ultimately being dilutive to the overall valuation of GE or, you know, its earnings power. Well, and in his case, his own empire, right? He he inherited this enormous company. And if his first order of business is to break it up, then I guess one has the question of what is he left running? which is, uh, is a difficult one for him. Um, so look, just, just lastly, before we wrap this up, um, there's been a lot said about the, I suppose, the sort of relative values of GE as it is today versus GE as a sort of sum of the parts, um, you know, post-breakup business. Can you just talk a little bit about sort of what's been speculated in terms of what GE might be worth if it did break up? Sure. So um, a couple of different analysts have some of the parts that put uh, GE's value at about 17 to $18 a share, which is roughly in line where we're with where it's currently trading. Now, those numbers do not take into account potential dis-synergies that could come from a breakup. So that's, you know, figuring out how to redistribute shared overhead costs or potential tasks leakage from spinoffs or asset sales, what have you. Um, a Cowan analyst estimates 11 to $15 as GE some of the parts, which is obviously significantly lower than where the share price is today. I have yet to see any some of the parts analysis 
analysis that tells me a GE breakup is going to deliver a value significantly higher than where it's currently trading. But I think the question that you have to ask is whether some of the parts analysis is necessarily the only thing to focus on in a situation like this. Um, You know, there's been some research done when you look at companies that broke up, their value ultimately exceeded what some of the parts analysis would have showed you beforehand. And that's because once you get a more focused management team in there that can be nimbler and respond to market shifts, they tend to be able to create more value than maybe analysts even had foreseen beforehand. And I think just given GE's problems, given the complexity that people are just tired of that, that maybe there's something to be said for sort of ripping off the Band-Aid and really starting fresh and rethinking what this company's identity is. And maybe that is a path forward where GE can kind of sustainably grow profits, grow earnings. So lots and lots to look forward to um, for all the GE followers. And obviously for us in M&A land, broken up companies tend to lead to more deals because you have more small things that can be bought by, uh, by other people in the market. So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Thank you very much, Brooke, for joining me. Uh, if you want to follow Brooke on Twitter, I will let her tell you her handle. It is... <laughs> at B-L-S-U-T-H. And if you want to hear more from me, you can get me at Ed Hammond NY. The show was produced by Magnus Henriksen. Francesca Levy is the head of podcast. Thanks and see you next week. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.